with me as we come to the scripture. Uh, Father, I pray uh, that you would be with us uh, still. You've been with us always, but certainly this morning as we began, began to worship, we invoked your presence uh, among us and acknowledge that you're here and ask you to help us even as we worship you. We, we know that you've set aside one day in seven for us to stop and gaze upon you so that uh, we would understand anew, aright, afresh uh, who we are, who you are most certainly, but who we are in you uh, so that we may live as we ought. And so we pray, God, that you would now open your word to us that we could hear it, understand it, believe it. It would uh, sink into our hearts. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to the Old Testament book of Jonah. I'm going to just read the first uh, three verses. We'll come to some other things after that, but just the first uh, three verses for now. And this is the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, God will help me. I want to take up uh, this little book, really, of Jonah um, in the next number of weeks, I suspect. And uh, this is this uh, book is called A Minor Prophet, not because of its... Significance, that is to say, to call it a minor prophet isn't to say that it's insignificant. It's just to say that it's shorter than the major prophets who are longer. That's all that word means for us. There are the major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the longer ones, and then the shorter ones, which are these last 12 books that we have them arranged in our Bibles. Last 12 books of the Old Testament. So it's, it's minor in the sense that it's, that it's one of the shorter ones. And thus it is. But really it's one of the most well-known ones. If you mention Jonah out and about, most people know Jonah. Uh, sadly, all they know of Jonah often is the fact that it's told that he was swallowed up by a whale. Really a great fish as we have it. He was swallowed up by a great fish. And so that's really Jonah's notoriety uh, throughout the world in coloring books and cartoons. But uh, uh, he should be known for more, really, for more than, for more than that. But, but sadly, because of, because of this great fish incident, uh, many people think that Jonah really isn't a real person. It couldn't be a real incident that took place. I mean, how could that ever happen? But, but the truth of the matter is that, 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 that some think it's, it's just simply a parable that's put into the Bible to teach a lesson, a parable to teach us a, a very pointed kind of lesson. And it certainly does teach us a pointed kind of lesson. As we read through it, we learn of, 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 Jonah and his life and learn some things through him. And also we learn about God, of course, and God's great compassion and mercy. And we learn something of repentance and, and, and God's warning of judgment and, and all of that. So, so there's pointed messages here, but there's no need to think really that this isn't real, that it didn't really happen, that Jonah isn't a real person. In fact, in fact, we have a, a, a record of Jonah's life in Second Kings. If, you have a Bible or something and you want to turn to this in Second Kings in chapter 14, if you're quick in your Old Testament looking ups, uh, in Second Kings in chapter 14 and verse 23, we, we read this. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, that would be Jeroboam the second, Jeroboam, the son of um, Joash, king of Israel, you notice the difference between Judah and Israel. The kingdom of Israel has split into the northern kingdom of the southern, the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom being Judah, the northern kingdom being Israel, still called. The Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. Um, and he reigned 
41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know that? The northern kings always did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Some of the southern kings didn't, but the northern kings always did. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. However, notice this about this Jeroboam the second. He restored the border of Israel from Libo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. So he was blessed even in his wickedness, if you will. Uh, and the, the borders around Israel were restored. That is, they had been taken by Samaria back in chapter 13 but, uh, of Second Kings. But, but, but now they were restored and so he was able to... To, to get them back, if you will, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah. So that it was Jonah again. And the same Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath, Hefer. Uh, for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there, there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that uh, he would blot out uh, the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them, from the hand of Jerob, by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So we see that this Jonah uh, had a prophetic ministry during the time, 8th century BC, of, of Jeroboam II, and, and he was able to prophesy to Jeroboam and the people a sense of the mercy of God, even though they were being wicked, even though Jeroboam II was evil and all of that. Still, he was blessed to be able to expand the borders, to be able to, to, to get back the land to, to, to Israel. And so that was, that was Jonah's ministry, prophetic ministry there, the mercy of God uh, to his own people. Now, he wasn't the only prophet during that time. There was Amos and, and Hosea, and uh, they, their, their prophecies were different uh, to, to Israel than, to, and, uh, than, than, than Jonah's. But, but Jonah, a real guy. And so this starts out, as you read this, you read about Jonah, the son of Amittai. You say, this is the same Jonah. So we're talking about a real person here, not simply uh, a person of a, of a parable or a myth or a good story, whatever the, the, um, the outcome may, may be. And certainly the fish incident is unusual, right? But is it any more unusual than the parting of the Red Sea? Is it any more unusual than drying the riverbed, the seabed under the Red Sea so that hundreds of thousands, something millions of people could go across it and not sink in? Is, is that any more unusual than being swallowed up by a big fish and live? Uh, it seems not to me. Is it any unusual than the walls of Jericho falling down when a group of people went around it and, 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 and finally made some noises? Is that, is that, uh, is that uh, any more unusual than that? Or of Elijah being fed by ravens? Or uh, raising the son of a widow who had, the, the son had died and the, he raised him from the dead, not to mention a virgin birth and a resurrection. I mean, is it really any more unusual than, than any of that? And, and, and probably the linchpin of the authenticity of this man, Jonah, comes from the lips of, of, of Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus speaks of, of Jonah in a way that, that you get the sense that he, he really does think that Jonah's a real person. In Matthew in chapter 12, for instance, in verse 38, we read this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, uh, we wish to see a sign from you. A sign, no doubt, that he's the Christ, that he's from God and all that. As if he hadn't been giving them enough already. But uh, he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is speaking of Jonah as a real person. We can quibble about what the days mean and how we count days and all of that sort of thing, three days here, three days there, and nights. But, but, but you get the sense that, that Jesus isn't referring back to some sort of fable, some sort of story, some sort of parable, but he's talking about a real Jonah. And then he, then he goes on like this. He says that the men of Nineveh, well, that was part of the whole, you, you know, I didn't read that part, but, but you know the story of Jonah. You know that he goes to Nineveh and uh, he, he prophesies to them that, uh, about the warning of God that, that, um, that in their wickedness that God's going to judge them. And, you know, they repent of their sin, so God doesn't judge them. And, and so the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn us. 
I mean, if that's just a myth, I'm not too concerned about their testimony. If they're not real people, <laughs> if they're real people, then that concerns me. But if, if they're just, you know, made up people, uh, it, it doesn't really... Con- the men of Nineveh will rise up in, at the judgment of this generation and con- condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. You know, Jesus doesn't, doesn't make things up about repentance and preaching. And repentance and preaching aren't, 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 aren't part of a story, part of a parable. They're, they're, these are important to Jesus. He came to preach. And he came to preach repentance, real repentance of real people. And so for Jesus, this is really, this, this isn't just. So he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Not something greater than a mythical figure, something greater than a person in a parable, but something greater than Jonah is here. And, and Jonah was great in the sense, of course, that, that hit through his preaching, a whole nation, or city anyway, repented of their sins. That's great. But Jesus said, somebody's greater than Jonah's here. Uh, Nineveh will testify, uh, but somebody's greater than Jonah. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came uh, from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She was a real she, she the queen of Sheba. She really came. This is, this is really uh, something that, that the scripture speaks to us as a real incident in the life of Solomon. And so Jesus, again, appealing to something real, a real person, something that happened. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so, so Jesus himself, and that's the linchpin, because you see, he's the Lord. You know, when people ask me, why do I believe, especially the Old Testament is infallible and is the word of God, I simply say, because Jesus did. Jesus did. He spoke of it as the word of God. He said, nothing will pass away from it. Why? Because it's the word of God. His, his whole life was lived to obey it, to follow it. In fact, his whole life was reflected in and through it. He was the fulfillment of it. And he's the Lord. And if he says that it's trustworthy, then it, it's trustworthy. And I submit to him. Now we could talk about other things and other reasons and all of that, but, but that's really it. That's the reason it is. And parenthetically, the reason we believe the New Testament is the infallible word of God is because Jesus authorized his people to write it. He said that the Holy Spirit will come and he'll testify to you and he'll speak to you all truth, you see. And so as they receive the Spirit, his apostles, and they write of the things that Jesus it's true of Jesus, and we, we get it. It's by the Holy Spirit. And so the New Testament is well at, if you will, the word, the word of Jesus. So we take this minor prophet, significant prophet, but short in terms of length. We take it as certainly the word of God. We take it as a real situation, Jonah, a real, a real person. What I want to do today in the time I have is simply to give us an overview. We'll we'll pick at this uh, over the next number of weeks. But to to give an overview, to to catch it all, if you will, um, as to to the message. It's it's a prophetic word. the, The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And so what is that word? Well, we we know it. The word particularly to Jonah that he was going to go to the people of Nineveh. We know that word that he had for them. And, and certainly that is this, this prophetic word that he has, uh, Jonah does, to the people. Um, we see it uh, uh, as, as, he, as he, takes it, he takes it to them. In, in chapter 3 and verse 4, we read, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that's a very short sermon. Right? It's just a sentence. It's a warning. And, and we don't know all the details, really. We can take it. And maybe that's all he said. Maybe he went through the city. So it took him a number of days to get through the city. Uh, and so maybe that's all he said as he, as he went through uh, the city, saying, in a sense, uh, you've got 40 days. 
on the city of Nineveh will be overthrown. It doesn't seem that he said anything else. It doesn't seem that he called them to repentance. It doesn't seem that he said that if you repent, then God will relent upon this warning and all of that. God did, obviously. In fact, always in the warning from God is the provision that if people repent, he will turn away from this judgment. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah in chapter 18 uh, puts it like this, verse 7. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So that's, that's how God put it to Jeremiah. He says, Now this isn't unusual for me to give out a warning and then relent from it if the people repent. Nor is it unusual for me to speak a word of blessing and relent from the blessing if the people reject me. So, so that's, that's my MO. That's how I work. That's how I operate. And, and, and Jonah knew that. In fact, in chapter 4, he says the reason that he fled God was because he knew what God would do if they repented. Verse 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What displeased him was because God didn't destroy them after they repented of their sin. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, I knew this about you. How did he know that about him? Well, Jeremiah put it. He knew it. He knew that God would relent. And that's why he didn't want to go in the first place. We'll talk about that later. But but that, you you see. And so God did, in fact, relent. And so the, the message, certainly first and foremost, to the people of Nineveh, was this warning of judgment. And whether it was couched in this sense of repentance, if you repent, I don't know. But, but all we have is this warning. And, and this, that's the message. And it's a true message. It's a message just as true for us as it was for them, for them, for us. That, that that's simply true. That if we rebel against God, and we do not repent, and we turn to Him, and we do not trust to Him, then disaster will come. The ultimate disaster, obviously, is hell. That's true. We want to find a prophetic message from Jonah to us, to the world in which we live. It's the same we don't have the specifics. We can't run around saying 40 days. We can't say that specifically. The disaster is going to befall you or any of that. But that was specific. But, but the sense of the message, of course, is, the, is always the same generation after generation after generation after generation. That if we rebel against God and we do not repent, then judgment will come. But there's another message as well. The broader message. Because you see, the message wasn't simply, this book wasn't written to the people of Nineveh per se. It was about them and about the word that went to them. And so we can glean from that. But, but this 
letter, this book, would be read by the Israelites. It would be read ultimately as well by us. We, we, read, we read it. So, so it would be read by us as well. And so the question then is, so, so what, is there a message? Is there, is there something we're to, we're to see here? A prophetic word, uh, from, from God. And, and yes, the one to Nineveh we glean from, but there's something else too. And that's why, if you don't mind me, just stepping back and having a Sunday school class for three minutes. Um, that's why the book of Jonah is called a prophetic narrative. Okay, can you just kind of, it's, it's not a hard thing to think about. A prophetic narrative, meaning that, that the story itself is prophetic. That's why it does lead to people thinking it's a parable, because it feels like that, it seems like that, if you will. Please understand, I believe it's a real person and a real incident and all of that. But, but the way it comes to us in this prophetic narrative, what, what we, we, we hear the prophecy by way of what happens in the context of Jonah's life and his relationship with God. See, a prophetic narrative. You can see that, for instance, in the life of Hosea. If you read the, the prophecy of Hosea, what's God saying? Well, we hear it. We hear this prophetic utterance, if you will, uh, through the life of Hosea. Happens glimpses of other prophecies. Other prophets, where we call, they have enacted prophecies, where they, they do something, and you see what they do, and they say, oh, that speaks volumes. This speaks volumes to us. So the question is, what do we hear as we walk our way through this minor prophet, this life of, of Jonah? Yes, we hear the prophetic word to Nineveh, but what else? What else do we hear? What, what else? What other message is there? And, and I would say this first. Just, again, this is just overview this Sunday. I would say this first, that uh, we don't want to be like Jonah, right? I mean, if you know the, the story of Jonah, and just uh, we read the call of Jonah to go to Nineveh. We see that he flees from the presence of the Lord. And just that, we think, what an odd thing for a prophet to do. I mean, some of the prophets were rather reluctant to be prophets. I mean, Jeremiah says, I don't want to do that. God says, you will. And so he said, all right. Even Moses, we look at the life of Moses. Uh, he, he said, I'm not your guy. How about my brother? And God said, no, 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 you. Oh, no, you. He was reluctant. So he went. And Jonah just simply fled. Not only did he flee Geographically, you get the sense, by the way it's put here, you get the sense that he fled spiritually as well. Now if you think of it, you don't need to know this, but if you, if you think about this, that, that Nineveh is northeast of where Jonah was in Israel, and Jonah went west. Now, I'm not very good with maps, and if I did that, my wife would say he doesn't have a clue where he's going. But Jonah knew how to clue where he was going. He knew exactly where he was going. He was going the other way. He was fleeing from the place where God wanted him. But notice how it's put here, at least in the ESV. Uh, he rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, in one sense, of course, that's silly. Right? To try to flee from the presence of the Lord. That's silly. This is the Lord. If he's really the Lord, he's omniscient. He sees everything. He's omnipresent and all those kinds of things that we know to be true of God. It's sort of like being the little kid. You know, little kids go like this. You can't see me. Well, it's cute when you're two, but it's not so cute when you're like whatever age Jonah was. And so spiritually speaking, that's exactly what he was doing. He was running to Tarshish going, if I get there, God will never see me there. You know? And, uh, and so it was silly. But, but we get what he means. He was fleeing. From that which he knew, God desired of him. God wanted him to do, wanted him to believe, wanted him to be. And I say it that way because we all know exactly what Jonah was doing. Trying to flee the presence of the Lord. I know exactly what Jonah was doing, however silly 
I see it to be. And we flee from, from what we know God wants us to believe even. We know what we're to believe and yet the way that we live betrays us. Do I really believe that? And I flee his presence. In the midst of sin, when I know I'm sinning, in the midst of something, I, I, there's a sense in which I'm fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I know what I ought to do. I know what I ought to think. I know what I ought to say. And yet I'm not. There's a sense in which I'm, I'm fleeing. I know what I ought to believe. And yet I'm not really believing it. I'm fleeing from the presence. Although I know I ought to be faithful. But I'm unfaithful. I'm fleeing from the presence of, of the Lord. You see, We can see that unfaithfulness in marriage. We can see it in relationships. We can see it in friendships. We can see it with the Lord. We're fleeing that. See, so, so this is specific to Jonah, of course. But we get it. We understand. We may not have that particular situation. God said, go here. We went there. Probably did. But, but we get it. We understand. We understand Jonah really at this point. And perhaps the saddest part of all, at least to me as I read through this, is that, you know, uh, Jonah gets into this boat, a ship at Joppa to go west so he doesn't have to go to Nineveh. And, and he sleeps. A big storm comes up. All the pagan sailors are scared. They're sailors, so they're used to this. But, but they're scared at this kind of storm that comes up. And yet, uh, so they're, they're frantic, if you will. But Jonah's asleep. There's a sense in which, in fleeing from the presence of the Lord, he's not anxious at all. There's a sense in which, as he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, he's not scared at all. Uh, he's, he's thinking he's actually getting away with this. <sighs> that, just, that scares me. To think that a prophet of God, Jonah, can be content enough, peaceful enough to sleep in the midst of fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And that tells me I don't, I don't want to be like Jonah. I don't want to be peaceful Fleeing from the presence, from the presence of the Lord. But there he is doing, doing just that. And what we see about Jonah is that he's merciless. Not simply merciless, but merciless. In other words, he's, he's, not, a, he's not a man of, of great mercy. I mean, God's calling him to go to a nation that's lost, that's going to be destroyed because of their wickedness and sin. And he's a prophet. I mean, I mean, sort of the job description of a prophet is to go to people who are sinning and tell them not to and to warn them of the judgment of God. I mean, that's what prophets do. That's what prophets did, supposed to do in Israel and Judah and so forth. I mean, it's kind of their, their you know, top line job description. What do you do? You do this. And so Jonah didn't want to do that. And the reason he didn't want to do it, it seems, is because he didn't want to do it to people who are outside of Israel. At least he didn't want to do it to these people in, in Nineveh. They weren't his kind. They weren't his people. Uh, he was a nationalist, maybe even a racist, we might call him. I don't know how you'd put it, but, but he didn't want to go to them. And he was afraid that if he did, that God would save them. And, and you get the sense in the life of Jonah that he didn't believe they deserved to be saved. They weren't worthy of salvation. They weren't worthy of God's relenting. They weren't worthy of God's blessing because they weren't of Israel. And so he wasn't going to go there. And he, in fact, let me just read this quickly. Chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from danger. From disaster. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. In other words, I can't stand the fact that these people in Nineveh have been blessed like I've been blessed. I can't stand that fact. I'd rather die than see them like that. 
And the Lord said, and do you do well to be angry? <laughs> and Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see that of what would become of the city. And now the Lord appointed a plant and it, and it made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. It's way too hot. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which it came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? So you don't own the plant. The plant just gave you a little comfort for a day. I made the plant. And all you're concerned about is the fact that you're warm. What about these people? I think about that, you know, sometimes I can be more crazy in the fact that my air conditioner goes out on a hot day and the fact that my neighbors are lost. Now, I know, I get it. I, you know, I can get my air conditioning fixed really fast. My neighbors might be another story. But I think about that. Why? Does one affect me so quickly and much and another, not so much. I don't want to be, I don't want to be like Jonah. That's, that's a message. That's a message. But then there's another message, and here's the key, I think. And this will drive us as we work our way through. And that is, there's something to be said about God here. I shouldn't surprise you, you know, we read, what's, what's the point of this? And we think, well, God's the point of this. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, in the one sense, I could say, yeah, the Ninevites, I want to be like them. I want to repent. I want to be sensitive to my, to my sin. When the warning comes, when I read through the scripture, and there's tons of warning passages through the scripture. I had a person come to me recently, troubled, and, they, and we all should be troubled when we read, uh, uh, if you know this passage of Hebrews chapter 6, where God says, in effect, that uh, here you are in the church, the Hebrews, you are in the church and, uh, and uh, you've tasted various good things from God. Uh, now, but you haven't really come to faith. You don't really believe. And so be careful. You, you may never be able to come to repentance. Because you've tasted so much. And, and, and that's a warning. And, and I always say, yes, I know when I read that warning, it scares me back to faith. When someone who's utterly lost reads that. It doesn't scare them at all. And I'm warned by it. I want to be warned by the warnings. I want to be scared by the warnings. I want to be slapped in the face by the warnings. I want to be shaken by the warnings. As I read through the scriptures, I want to be like the Ninevites, but I don't want to be like Jonah. Oddly enough, I want to be like the pagan people and not like the covenant man in this incident. But yet, there's something about God. What does this tell me about God? You see, because because when we read the scripture, the question we should always be asking is, what is this telling me about God? Because you see, God's it. God's, God's, God's it. That's what we're after. Who is God? How do I know him? Uh, everything, everything is important as it relates to God. Sometimes we say God's first, everything else is second, third, fourth. Can I say that's not the best way to think of it? Because God's not first in a list. God's first of the list. God's preeminent in all things. God isn't first, my family, second, me, third. God's first in my family. God's preeminent in my family. By that I mean God defines what my family is and what my family is to be. That's what it means. He's preeminent in my family. What I need to know, what does God think about family? How does God think a husband should be, a father should be? That's what I want to know. God's not simply first and my job is second. God's first in my job. 
First, in the sense that he's preeminent, he defines what my job is to be. He's defined how I'm to do the, the vocation to which I'm called, not just in ministry, but yours as well. How do I understand my vocational life? How do I understand my job in the context of who God is and what he's called me to be, you see? God's first in my recreation. That is, he, 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 he defines how I'm to recreate, how, how, how it's best to do that, if you will, how I'm to understand recreation in the context of my whole life, how I'm to understand leisure in the context of my whole life, how I'm to understand pleasure in the context of my own life, how I'm to understand pain in the context of my own life. You know, God is first in everything. He's preeminent. He's the definer. I want to know God. That's what the scripture is about. So as we come to this prophetic message, two things, I think, that we we see uh, of God here. Two things I think we see of God here, and we'll, again, unpack this. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll jiggle this as we go through, but but two things I just want to, to lay out today. First of all this, neither surprising, by the way. First of all this, that God is sovereign. When we think of sovereign... We think of king. We think of ruler. God's the absolute king, the absolute sovereign, if you will. That means that he's utterly free to act however he desires to act. He's utterly free. He's the sovereign. He's unconstrained. No one constrains him. He's not constrained by anyone. He's only constrained, if we can put it this way, by, by himself, by who he is, right? And so, so God is utterly sovereign. He's utterly free. No one has authority or power or rule over him. He's the authority over all things. The way we put it sometimes theologically is that God ordains all that comes to pass. He's, he's free to To do, he's free to ordain all that comes to pass. Nothing can come to pass outside of his ordination of it. Uh, God is sovereign. He has the authority over all things. Nothing has authority over him. He's the author of all things. He's the author, so he's the authority over all things. Nothing can thwart him. He's powerful. He's almighty. He has power over all things, nothing can thwart him. And, and we see that as we read through this uh, minor prophet. He exercises, God does, his, his sovereignty. He calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. Does Jonah want to go to Nineveh? No. Does he eventually want to go to Nineveh? Yes. Does he go to Nineveh? Yes. Why? Because <laughs> God is sovereign over this prophet. And he gets him there. He gets him to, to Nineveh. God wants to save Nineveh and people there. Do they want to be saved? Not particularly. It's not like they're seeking the Lord before Jonah shows up. They're a wicked city. They're they're the natural enemies of Israel, the people of God. They're the enemy of God, we can put it that way. But he says, no, we're going to go there, and this is what's going to happen. Do they repent of their sins? Yes. Why? Because God is sovereign. Does Jonah want to be used by God? No. Is he? Yes. Why? How does he, how does he get there? Well, he gets there because God is, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the sea. Why did the sea start to begin to act up? Well, it says verse four, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. The Lord did that. So, oops, Jonah's going that way. Whoops. The Lord is sovereign over the sea. He said, Wind blow, make a mess in the sea. It did, and that's what happened. God's sovereign over the lots that are cast. I mean, you know, they're, they're rolling dice to see who's the problem here. And, uh, and it points to Jonah. Are those weighted dice? Well, no and yes. Right? God is sovereign over the casting of those, over the casting of those lots. He was, the, the, the soldiers want to throw Jonah 
overboard. And you're thinking, well, how's this going to work out? I mean, you know, he's going to throw Jonah overboard and Jonah's going to die. He's going to die in the sea. He'll never get to Nineveh. But God is sovereign over big fish. I mean, he really is. And you say, that sounds fantastic. And it is fantastic. I mean, we don't hear about this every day. But a big fish comes and swallows up Jonah. And then a big fish three days later lets him go on the dry land because God is sovereign over even over even big fish. He's the sovereign one, you see. He does all of that. So he's sovereign over the wind and he's sovereign over the sea and he's sovereign over the lots and he's sovereign over the fish and the ship and the sailors and everybody and everything. Isn't he in the midst of all that? He is, he's, he's sovereign. He's even sovereign over the plant. He's sovereign over the worm that eats the plant and all of that in order to, to teach lessons. And so as we read through this, we're going to see great ironies. I mean, great. I mean, life is full of ironies. I suspect in the context of your own life, you can see, wow, I never intended that. But here I am. And great ironies. You know, Jonah never wanted to tell any non-Israelite about God. But he finds himself doing it all the time. I mean, unwittingly, here he is in this ship and, and it's, it's, the lots are cast and it's Jonah. So they have to say, well, who are you? And so unwittingly, he ends up saying, he ends up saying to this to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. <laughs> I mean, uh, he, he had to give his, his, his testimony, if you will, in the midst of it. He didn't want to. He wanted to sleep. He wanted to get away. He didn't want to tell anybody. He didn't want to tell the Ninevites, but he ended up there. And when he did, and everybody he talked to all these pagans, whether they're the sailors or whether they're the Ninevites, ended up repenting and believing in the Lord. Completely contrary to what Jonah had initially set out to do. The, the, great, the great irony, if you will, of all of that. God is sovereign, you see. His will will be done. But what we also see is that he's merciful. Could we say it like this? The the characteristic of God is his sovereign mercy. Sovereign, you see, God is orchestrating all of this so that he can be merciful. He can be merciful to the sailors. He can be merciful to the Ninevites. He can be merciful even to Jonah. He can teach Jonah about, about his own mercy, you see. Jonah's running away, but God gets him. Jonah doesn't want God to get him, but God gets him. Because God is merciful and he's sovereign over all these things, over all these events, even over the life of Jonah, so that Jonah can eventually, we hope, see the mercy The mercy of God. Look at the mercy that God shows to Jonah. He's running away. If God were going to give him judgment, he should have let him go. Uh, But no, he doesn't. The the wind is merciful. The mercy of God. The the sea is merciful uh, to Jonah because of the mercy, if you will, of God. That's the very manifestation of the mercy of God. The sea that's roaring. Uh, the lots being cast merciful to identify him so that they'll throw him overboard. The, 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 The fish is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Some of you might be thinking back through your own life and saying, I know my big fish. I know the mercy of God. I know my big fish that came and swooped me up. And in the midst of that fish, I repented of my sins. Who sent that fish? The mercy, sovereign mercy of God, the mercy of God to the sailors. To not hold their throwing of Jonah overboard against them, but rather bringing them to make a sacrifice in vows, which is the Old Testament formula for repentance and belief. Merciful to the Ninevites. Merciful. Merciful to Jonah. We see it. In fact, I would say that the prophetic 
message of Jonah is the glory of God. And I put it that way because of what I read in Exodus in chapter 33. This is an incident in the life of Moses. And it's, it followed the Israelites from Egypt to Mount Sinai to the giving of the law to the worship at the golden calf to Moses then pleading with the Lord on their behalf. And Moses essentially says to God, show me your glory, listen. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sights and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you my name. And so God says, I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to do it by pronouncing my name. Here's my name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But God said, you can't see my face for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face uh, shall not be seen. When God says, I'm going to show you my glory, that is, I'm going to re- give you a a reflection of who I am. Here's who I am. I'm the one who's sovereignly merciful. I'll show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And he says, when you see my mercy, you see my glory. And what we see when we read through this prophet is the sovereign Mercy of God. That which we all need in our lives, lest we be lost. Think about your own life. If you're an unbeliever and you're here today, this is the mercy of God. If you're an unbeliever and you know Christians, this is the mercy of God. He's bringing you this message of salvation to you. Don't despise it. Don't turn away from it. Don't. Be like the Ninevites. Do be like the Ninevites and receive it and believe, you see. And for us as believers, we know the mercy of God. You know, when, when we baptize, when we give vows to join the church, when we take communion, we always say that we believe that we're without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God. We're without hope, except in the sovereign mercy of God. Without hope because we're hopeless, because we're running from God. Just as we read in Ephesians 2 today, that, that we're dead in trespasses as we're running from him, you see. Uh, we're fleeing from his presence. We don't want him. And, and he comes after us by way of the Holy Spirit. And that's the mercy of God, you see. And we know that we're without hope, except. In that sovereign mercy, left to our own devices, we're lost. And so when we find ourselves found, we trace back to the sovereign mercy of God. And this sovereign mercy, once received, and, and we know it, what, what's it do? It humbles us. You see, that was the whole point. It was to humble Jonah. God is working in the life of Jonah to humble him, to, to make him a merciful, compassionate man. He wasn't. And God said, well, look at the mercy that I've shown you. The, 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 the ship, the, the whale, the plant. I want you to see the mercy you've received. Freely, Jesus said, you've received now, freely give. So the merciful, they'll receive mercy. You get mercy, you know it, and you become merciful, compassionate. That's, that's the nature of it. It humbles us. We realize that no one deserves it, not I. And yet I've received it, therefore how can I withhold it from anyone else? And so the mercy of the gospel is to go out from us. We're to, we're to share this gospel with others and not keep it from anyone, even the Ninevites, even our greatest enemies, even the ones that we think, 
All the people would be most undeserving. Even saying that is convicting. And we go, whoops, I'm most undeserving. So how can I keep it? This gospel from them makes us grateful. It leads to worship. It gives us peace. Now we can really sleep. Now we really needn't be anxious because we're reconciled to God. He's shown to us his sovereign, didn't have to, sovereign mercy. You say, how can I know that I've been a recipient of his sovereign mercy? Well, he says, He'll receive all those who trust in Jesus. Do you? Then you have. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That even as we spend our time with this prophet, we will learn from him from his life and his relationship with you and how you pour out your life to and through him, we'll learn from from him how we are to be grant to us mercy. Father, we're grateful for the mercy that you've shown us in saving and building our church and enabling us to to share this gospel with others. We pray for those in uh, our church this past week in Family Promise that those who participated from our church have a great sense of having done that which is pleasing to you, but also those who lived here this week and ate among us uh, will have heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that you will bring mercy not simply to grant them housing. We desire that, not, but also, Father, that you would grant them the mercy of salvation. Father, pray that you'd be merciful for Mickey Santee tomorrow as her surgery comes. And we pray that your mercy would be manifested through doctors and nurses and family and friends and all who care for her. And that your mercy would be shown by healing her from this cancer and granting her sweet recovery from this surgery. For our dear Lorraine Canistra, that you would be merciful to her and heal her infections. For Melissa Foster, you'd be merciful to her, God, even as she faces this extensive surgery in a week, that you bring healing and strength to her. Father, we pray for Rick and Kelly in Costa Rica, you'd bless them on this Sunday. Be merciful to them. We thank you for the great mercy that you've shown to John and uh, Tiffany Hiller on the birth of Frederick Charles. We're grateful. Father, be with us. May we know your mercy and may your mercy resound from us. In Jesus' name.